Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and this is my 11th year teaching in a suburban high school. And I'm Michael Ralph, and this is my third year working as an education researcher full-time. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Bayou Milk Stout from the Two Pitchers Brewing. I'm noticing for the first episode of our sixth season, we are a return to form with dark, stout beers. Yeah, we learned a lot about wheats and we drank some weird stuff last time. I wanted to start out with something we were both comfortable with. Beginning of the school year, right? You know, back to familiar territory. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? Staffing challenges in districts across the United States are fueling a narrative of a nationwide teacher shortage. However, Paul Bruno joins us to talk about his recent work showing there may not be a national shortage, or national anything. Later, we read a paper showing some of the inequitable impacts of math homework, and the persistence of a meritocracy myth despite teachers' knowledge of the inequity. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read, Is There a National Teacher Shortage? A Systemic Examination of Reports of Teacher Shortages in the United States. This was written by Tuan Nguyen, Chain Lam, and Paul Bruno. And this is an Ed Working paper that is published prior to peer review. And we are fortunate enough to have one of the authors here with us right this second. Dr. Paul Bruno is an assistant professor in the Department of Education Policy, Organization, and Leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He teaches courses in school finance and quantitative method with the intention of helping scholars impact school reform. Thanks for being here, Dr. Bruno. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. I feel like I, I feel like I want to say, you know, in the spirit of um, your program, I'm I'm drinking uh, Being a King Double IPA from the Triptych Brewery. I'm so glad you're drinking that and not me because we don't I don't really like IPAs, but uh, we're going to drop that in the show notes so that uh, everybody else can follow up on it. <laughs> so So Paul, you and your co-authors have done this rather extensive examination of teacher shortages, where they are, what they look like and how they're arising across the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about why you've done this work? Yeah, so I think all of us are really interested in teachers generally uh, from a research standpoint, just because it's it's so clear how important they are. I think that is clear in the research. I think it's also clear in some of our prior experiences as teachers. So I taught middle school science, for uh, for example. Um, and the importance of teachers then raises the question of sort of how important it is to make sure that we have teachers uh, in the classrooms where we want them and that those teachers are as effective as we want them to be. And I think we also uh, are were aware that Every summer, there are a lot of there's a lot of news coverage on issues of teacher shortages and teacher hiring because you know mid to late summer is when schools are trying to staff up. Every year, um, there's all the time there's these stories about teacher shortages. There's extensive debates about exactly what constitutes a teacher shortage and how to think about what makes a teacher shortage. Because uh, if there are teacher shortages, that's very important because teachers are very important. Uh, but also those debates are very hard to adjudicate just because 
the actual evidence is, is, is super unclear. It's very hard to know the true sort of scope of teacher shortages and teacher labor markets generally are just really, really complicated. And so we wanted to try to bring some information, some as much as we could get as clear a picture as we could of what the data show about actual teacher shortages nationwide and try to put that in one place uh, as much as as much as possible. And that's actually why I queued up this paper and wanted to have this conversation with you is it feels like especially on places like social media or in teacher communities, there are these sometimes dueling comments about teachers saying there are shortages. We're having trouble filling positions. I'm doing a lot of extra work covering vacancies and covering absences. And then on the other side of that conversation, there are people saying the data say there are no shortages. So your experience is wrong. And I personally really struggle to reconcile all of those conversations going on because I acknowledge that you see what you see in the data and I acknowledge what you that you see what you see in the classroom and there has to be a way to make some broader sense of all of this and so your your and your co-author's approach to actually trying to merge all of those stories together into a more comprehensive and thoughtful picture I was really excited to be able to per- perhaps put down that tension finally uh, so so what did you see when we say teacher shortage, what did you actually look at? So first, we had to sort of think about different definitions that have been used in the past or different ways of measuring shortages. So for example, we, we had to think about, okay, maybe we want to look at, we mostly look at vacant positions. So when we can find evidence that there are positions, teaching positions, administrators are trying to fill and they can't. But then also thinking about, well, maybe we also want to look at teacher qualifications and are teachers fully certified? Are, are principals able to hire uh, teachers who are fairly fully certified to teach things versus having to get emergency waivers or people you know, teaching out of their, their certification? And then it was a matter of seeing how we could gather the data on those things. And so we took a couple of approaches. We did some, um, there's some Google searching uh, trying to systematically search through like news reports, for example, which is where you, uh, we, it turns out we found a lot of uh, the most recent information on these things. Uh, but then also following up with either uh, state boards of education, uh, which sometimes make this information public, uh, at least in some places on their website, at least it's on some moderately reasonable timeline, or in some cases following up um, with them directly. So reaching out to them, contacting them, seeing if they could provide us with this information. One, I think, important thing to note is that uh, this work hadn't been done. Like, there was no national uh, database of teacher shortage information. There wasn't any um, clear way to go look it up. So you were creating information for the world to consume, and we appreciate that. And one of the things that you highlighted in your paper that I think is important to remember in these sorts of conversations is it's been pretty common for people commenting on teacher shortages to talk about a national shortage, but we don't have a national education system. Like that's not how we do education in the United States. And so being able to tend to the individual context of each state is a really important part of the consideration and something that you and your co-authors were really intentional about doing in in your analysis. So, so what did you see? Yeah. Is there a national teacher shortage? <laughs> Uh, so I think we are uh, we are deliberate about um, trying to we try to be as explicit as possible about uh, how agnostic we are about what might constitute something that you would want to call a true nationwide teacher shortage uh, that 
depending, you know, depending on what your priorities are, you might come to different conclusions about that question. Uh, we do try to quantify as much as possible what we know is sort of like a baseline, sort of a conservative estimate of the actual number of vacant positions nationwide, which we estimate at about 36,000 uh, vacant teaching positions nationwide in the states where we have data. And if we extrapolate that out, uh, it uh, to states where we don't have data, it looks like it might be roughly double that, uh, but uh, which is a large number. Uh, but and so you might want to characterize that as a uh, teacher shortage nationwide. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a fairly small fraction uh, of all of the teacher teaching positions in the country. Uh, which might make you a little bit cautious about describing it at a minimum, describing it as a crisis, uh, because the you know in terms of the the overall size of our education system, which it turns out is huge, uh, that's actually not as big of a number as it might seem. And we also find a ton of variation um, across uh, different states. Now we don't look within states, but there's probably some variation within states too. But that tremendous variation, both in the raw numbers of teacher vacancies and the the rate at which positions go vacant in different states also varies quite a bit from state to state. And that might be another reason why you might be cautious about talking about this in sort of nationwide terms, uh, given that there's all of this variation. And that's even putting aside the fact that we don't even look at things like different teaching positions uh, within a state. So for example, we don't look separately at elementary versus secondary teachers or special education versus general education teachers, even though from, from previous research, it's pretty clear that there's gonna be pretty big differences in those cases as well. Are you able, if we can't at a national level say we have a teacher crisis or a teacher shortage issue, can you like point fingers at states? This state's got a shortage. That state's got a start shortage. Do we have enough language and precision of information to even make those claims? I think given the, I think one of the big takeaways is just how limited our data are. Right. So uh, just in terms of the number of states for which we're actually not able to get, for example, vacancy in teacher vacancy information at all. And in many cases, we are able to get it, but it's dated. Uh, and so for that reason, I think, you know, it's important to be cautious about sort of like which are the states with the most severe uh, problems in this regard. So we do find uh, that vacancy rates are um much higher in some states than others. I think in particular, uh, we find there are some states in the south, uh, southeast region of the country with some relatively high teacher vacancy rates. So like Mississippi and Alabama, for example, but we also see relatively high uh, vacancy rates in places as um, sort of geographically diverse as like Montana and, and Kansas. Uh, Whereas the rates are much lower in um, in other states, uh, so for example, like Missouri, uh, I believe is where we find the the lowest rate of, of teacher vacancy. So if we are shaky about what we know, it's really you know uh, Ralph has said on this podcast that we want good data to make good decisions. That's what we want. So if we don't really feel super confident because we don't have a consistent language. We don't have a consistent set of metrics. What should happen going forward uh, to address that issue? Yeah, so we make a few recommendations. Um, one, a big one, is just that we recommend sort of trying to beef up uh, both our data, the data collection systems for these things and for some of the data reporting uh, systems for these things. So for example, right now, uh, in most uh, states, there's much better data, data available about the qualifications of teachers, at least where their qualifications are measured by their certifications. 
Um, uh, and that's that information is pretty commonly available. But for example, there's much less standardization around reporting vacancy numbers. That's often handled much more uh, even informally um, at the school or district level or different school systems are using different online job boards, things like that. And that makes it very hard to put these, this sort of collect this kind of information. We think there's important things that can be done both on the data collection side, but also on the reporting side that might be more useful for making some of those decisions so that you can target the policy solutions, whatever solutions you're, you're thinking about towards the schools and teaching positions where they're actually having the, the most trouble. I can imagine if I'm at a school, I should standardize reporting, but there are a great many things that perhaps I think I ought to be doing, and I have limited capacity to be doing all of those things. And so what can I be doing to get my positions filled? Like what can I do to just fill my vacancies? And if I approach it with a blunt instrument of there is a shortage and I'm distributing my resources to do all of my hires to the degree that I can, I'm going to be wasting some of my investment trying to fill positions that don't don't need that kind of investment for a search because there's not a shortage for in this place for this subject at our school. If we all want that data, we can help schools identify how to optimize their searches and then benefit from the data that, that we've generated in helping them do that. But help recognizing that that can help a school optimize their search and thus fill their positions to then get professionals in classrooms who are highly certified to teach courses with students, I think is going to be really compelling for a school who really wants to do right by the students who are in their rooms right here, right now. Yeah, no, I think you hit on a really key point about the potential to waste a lot of resources and a lot of effort trying to solve teacher shortages in places where there aren't really teacher shortages, either for specific schools or for, for specific positions. I think if you're thinking about what can like an individual school administrator do about these issues, I think it, I actually am very sympathetic to to the, their plight here because I think that the options available to them are, are, are limited in a variety of ways. I think a lot depends, for example, on physically where your school is located. Uh, for example, what kind of access you have to teacher preparation programs and people graduating from teacher preparation programs uh, and the type of resources available in your community to fund your schools, for example. I'm not actually sure that those administrators necessarily need uh, you know, better data from, from me and my, my researcher friends on this. I think if I, when I talk to school leaders, I think they're often aware of the fact that the, you know, the, the, the challenges are more severe in some schools and for some positions. In many cases, it can be difficult still to sort of adopt some of those recommendations like differentiating compensation. I think that's often a politically a bit of a touchy subject. The easiest thing is often going to be to just sort of offer an across the board incentive for everybody. No one's going to object to that usually. Um, but I think that's the kind of thing that they should be thinking about for the reasons that um, that we've, we've talked about. I, I'm really not trying to like stab or catch anybody here but uh, my next mean question is um if administrators don't need this information who does yeah i think that i think that's a really good and really important question um and i think you know as a as a former middle school teacher i will say i'm used to much more hostile questions than that so <laughs> if that's the best well you, got... you know i'm trying to justify <laughs> your doctoral position research you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, I've, I've certainly thought about this before, and I'll try to, I'll try to make sure I'm, in many cases, probably speaking for myself as much as for my co-authors on this. But I think we're, I think we're on a broadly similar page, maybe, uh, at least on a lot of this. So I think this is important for a few reasons. Um, one is I think even if individual school leaders don't necessarily have um, a ton of options at their disposal for dealing with some of these nuances, the nuanced problems that they have, uh, I think 
a lot of other people potentially do. So I think, for example, one of our you know target audiences, even as we mentioned in our paper, is um, journalists and the general public. Um, and I think journalists in particular are often driving a lot of the narratives around the nature of these problems. And so it's not unusual. In fact, you know, I, I set up a Google alert uh, for teacher shortage, uh, and uh, it's just a fire hose of news stories about nationwide teacher shortages that are at crisis levels. And for that word crisis even gets thrown around a lot. And um, and I think that is absolutely driving a lot of people's perceptions. I'll say just anecdotally, you hear stories about, you know, families worried that their local school is not able to staff up, that there is a crisis at their school and they have, are going to have some vague sense that they're going to send their kid off to their school and they're not going to be adequately supervised because we just have this crisis problem. I think that's that's potentially a problem in its own right. I actually worry a little bit about that sort of undermining um, sort of faith in uh, individual schools that are actually not having problems in many cases might be dealing with these things really well already. I also worry about how that affects their attitude towards policy solutions that might be adopted and sort of what sorts of solutions gain popular support. And there, I think it's also relevant that um, this information is going to state legislators, for example, uh, when they think about potential solutions here and thinking about is what we need in our state, for example, a uh, policy that just tries to increase enrollment in teacher preparation programs writ large uh, because there's a teacher shortage uh, or is that going to, very similar to the issue at the individual school or district level with differentiated compensation, is that going to mean that we invest a lot of resources, getting a lot of people to go into teacher preparation programs who are still not going to get the certifications that we really need them to get and are not going to be willing or able to work in the hardest to staff schools? And so I think it's really important as these narratives are evolving and developing that people are thinking about the nuances when they think about the policy solutions that might be adopted, even if an individual district or superintendent might have a hard time adopting some of these um, these solutions. I think there's potentially more latitude at the state level to target interventions uh, toward the specific schools, the specific type of teaching positions that, that really need that, that support. And so I think we're hoping to sort of inform sort of journalist audiences, which will hopefully then, you know, uh, and help to inform sort of policymakers uh, and affect ultimately the kinds of solutions that, that get adopted, um, while also maybe uh, helping researchers sort of lay out the case for how we could bolster some of these data systems overall so that even those, those decisions could be even better informed with, with better data. I should acknowledge with this next question that uh, teacher preparation is near and dear to my heart as I worked in teacher preparation prior to my current role as a full-time education researcher, and I continue to have deep involvement with teacher education and teacher prep programs at the national level, acknowledged. And your study definitely, uh, one of the things that you pointed out was that you found some suggestive statistical evidence that teacher preparation plays a role, I would argue perhaps a big role, I would act argue perhaps the first mover role in a large part of this problem. And I'm wondering, as you describe the need for a better articulation of what this problem is and what this problem is not, and how it shapes the way potential future teachers view the profession and the potential to enter the profession. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot in that uh, question. Uh, and I think I, uh, and but I, 
I think, and I, I'll speak, you know, for myself here, not necessarily again for my my co-authors, but I think there's a lot to the idea that um, teacher preparation has an important role to play here. That is, as as we find, as you alluded to, we do find in the paper that um, higher rates of um, teacher certification um, are associated with lower um, evidence, smaller evidence, weaker evidence of teacher shortages, right? So if you're preparing more teachers in your state, you're also, at least according to our evidence, less likely to be experiencing shortages of teachers as we as we, as we we find, uh, which is not, maybe not shocking, but I think worth uh, emphasizing. Um, and I think you are um, right to worry about some of the, uh, the, the teacher shortage crisis narratives potentially affecting who goes into teaching, right? And this is something where I'd be, I'm very cautious about speculating because I actually have very little understanding of how the psychology of this might work. I think for some people, they might actually imagine that have uh, the narrative of teacher shortage is actually good in some ways for encouraging people to go into teacher preparation because what you hear is like, well, I'll be able to get a job. Um, but to your point, I think the nuance here is again, sort of important for making that decision. Uh, in the case of, for example, you want to know exactly what are the positions where you're most likely to find a job, you know, and that we ideally want people to go into those teacher preparation programs, not teacher preparation writ large, if there's an, uh, if there's already a, a, a satisfactory number of certain kinds of teachers in certain places. And I also worry about the sort of reverse um, psychological impacts that you that you mentioned in terms of indicating to people, yes, you maybe you'll get a job because there's a shortage, but what kind of job are you going to get a job that, as we've already told you, nobody wants. Uh, and I do worry about that potentially um, putting people off. Um, so I think it's true that teacher preparation plays a role here. I think it's a little bit hard to think about how all of the levers are going to work in practice, right? So I think something we need to be thinking about also is the geographic distribution uh, of teacher preparation opportunities uh, and thinking about, you know, how, and particularly in some communities that are like more rural, for example, where there's pretty good evidence, a lot of these shortage issues are worse, not from our paper, but from, from other evidence, um, thinking about how do we make sure that they have the opportunities in those areas to um, to recruit and retain teachers as well, I think is important. Um, so I think teacher prep is a complicated issue, but I think it, it would be hard. It's hard to think about um, how these issues get addressed without thinking about how the role that teacher preparation plays for sure. I was interested uh, uh, acknowledging that the quality of data is fuzzy at best. I was interested in uh, the areas that uh, sort of solve this problem by um, filling positions with under-licensed or under-qualified instructors. And what or how long has that been happening uh, to sort of like, you know, ameliorate the shortage problem? And what are the consequences of that? Uh, yeah, I would like to know too. <laughs> I think that would be great to, great to, to know. And I'd love for people to to anyone who is listening to sort of chime in with that. I think um, something we do like sort of emphasize is something that makes it a hard question to answer. And one of the reasons we don't focus as much on the licensure issue is just that the rules around teacher licensure and under what circumstances you can get, you can hire a teacher without the proper licensure and what that looks like. Those differ quite a bit between states. And that's another thing that makes it very hard to generalize. So, you know, a, a, a policy where teachers are underqualified in one state they might arguably can be count as qualified in a different state, uh, and so that makes it hard to say, like, well, because you're under your teachers are underqualified, they're not up to par, or whatever that that might be. Which further 
complicates making any kind of national claims ever because even if we did have a common language in terms of what a sh- what a vacancy is and what a shortage is even if those were consistent what you have to do to qualify to be a teacher to fill those vacancies is different from state to state <laughs> yeah i i mean i agree completely i think i i think uh, over and over again again i will probably come back to this point that i think it's i'm not sure that it's all that helpful to be talking about nationwide teacher shortages um i i, I just don't know that that adds a lot of value over and above describing the specific problems being experienced in specific school systems and i think that's just another another really important example of that so if we were really asking the question your best answer is probably not is there a national teacher shortage? Probably not. But does it matter to you, an administrator hiring for a teaching position in New Hampshire, whether or not there is an app? Like you don't, it doesn't matter to that particular context or any particular yeah, it's a, context. It's a real good headline. A lot of people are going to click on national teacher shortage. It's the best context to have that conversation, but we don't have a system built for it. Is my that's my hot take. I I have no I have no opinion on the the merits of a national teacher system, uh, but I will say that you know for I think it's entirely if if I was an administrator trying to really struggling to hire teachers in my New Hampshire school or wherever the example was that you gave, um, if anything, I, it's not obvious to me that actually I would prefer that the narrative be that we have a nationwide teaching shortage, uh, if. Uh, I think there are challenges that are somewhat distinctive for my school. Um, And I think particularly because I have a lot of concerns about what we know from previous research are inequities in the distribution of teachers and the distribution of teacher quality, um, both geographic inequities and inequities between between students uh, who have been educationally marginalized along a number of dimensions, whether that's income or race. I do worry about sort of sweeping all of those things into one narrative where we talk about a nationwide teacher shortage uh, as if sort of glossing over the fact that in reality, some of these shortage issues seem to be much worse for certain groups of students and certain groups of schools. And if I was an individual administrator or I was an individual family experiencing particularly acute uh, teacher staffing problems. Um, I think I would be cautious about sort of promoting that sort of nationwide, uh, that narrative of a nationwide teacher shortage, and I might want more attention paid to sort of the the particular problems that are that are affecting me and my community. This has been a great conversation, uh, Paul. Thank you for being here and chatting with us about your forthcoming work. We look forward to seeing it when it comes out in its post peer reviewed form, and further keeping an eye on how your work on teacher shortages, where they are and where they are not can inform our ability to make sure that all positions are hired with great people. Thanks for being here. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If people are curious, the working paper is openly available online. We also have a website associated with it, uh, teachershortages.com, uh, where you can also check out the information that we've collected. We'd love for you to look at it. And in fact, if you have more up-to-date information on teacher shortages that we missed, we're super open to getting that information as well. We're in this together. For our second segment, we read, You Need to Be More Responsible, The Myth of Meritocracy and Teachers' Accounts of Homework Inequalities. This is written by Jessica McCrory Calarco, Ilana Horn, and Grace Chen. This was published in Educational Researcher in 2022. 
I uh, really liked Ralph the pairing this this week. I thought uh, that was re it felt really nice to read something that really wasn't about a like a, a, a relevant education issue that wasn't in the hands of a teacher, and then pair that with a relevant education issue that is directly in the hands of the teacher. Only. Yeah. Only. Yeah. So that was very, um, that was nice. That that paired well with a nice uh, uh, New Orleans coffee stout. That was, that was good. That was a good pairing. And I loved it. I love this paper. I knew you would. <laughs> Gosh. You would. Well, you know, anytime you like, you read something that reinforces something that you've believed to be right. And you said this a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last episode that was like, it's something that I have been doing and it's nice to have it being reinforced. That's this. I was, I have been for a long time now, a low to none homework assigning teacher in my college biology class. We basically have one long form formal lab report that requires some outside time for them to write. Um, but that's the only out-of-school graded assignment that they have. And uh, in my Gen Bio class, I don't even remember the last time I gave them a take-home graded assignment. So the fact that this paper says, well, maybe those take-home graded assignments aren't aren't the best thing for uh, our kids is, uh, it was nice to read. Yeah, I cued this paper because it was getting some discussion and some play in the popular sphere. It got picked up by some publications and was commented on uh, by people who both love and hate homework. And so it was getting some vigorous discussion. And the author even weighed in with a pretty clear like response thread on Twitter that I've linked in the show notes. Uh, and so Dr. Horn has commented on uh, what she believes this work says, what she believes this work does not say. And so it was like, well, that's something that I would like to dig deeper into if there's a lot of people who are having competing analyses of this paper. And so what, what it is, it's a relatively brief, although dense and informative presentation of some medium scale work. They followed a cohort of students through something it was a handful of years in their elementary and middle school years and we're watching how they were engaging with homework they were looking at how there were differences arising between students who have a high socioeconomic status and students who have a lower socioeconomic status and specifically what they were trying to understand was how are teachers engaging with what they observe about how there are differences between students who are engaging or not engaging with homework and what do they think about it? How do they respond to it? How do they explain it? And particularly, they were finding some important um, disconnects between things teachers know to be true, but then explaining them in a different way. I just started talking about cognitive bias in my college biology class this week. I don't know. That's just a throwaway comment, but to, to to have that show up so concretely in the paper that I just told my kids this week, we are all biased. And the only way to prevent that bias from becoming discrimination is to be aware of it and conscientiously check it is really the takeaway message here. 
And if there are practices that exacerbate problems, you should reconsider those practices. Okay, so this paper is about the meritocracy myth versus, um, I don't know, maybe a opportunity and needs approach to what our students can achieve. Um, and man, the United States loves the meritocracy myth. It's not just a teachers giving homework education problem. It is absolutely everywhere. And so, um, hey, here's one problem with an overarching cultural narrative that is false. Kind of, I don't know. I'm just, uh, I'm waving my arms screaming. I really don't even know how to. I don't know how to package this. I don't know how to. I don't know how to yeah. do radio about this paper. It's an emotional paper. I had a similar reaction. I did not enjoy reading this paper. I cried. I all. actually cried. There's a section in here where I started crying, and then the immediately following that, I got super angry. So, like, yes, concur. This is this is an emotional paper. Yeah, I I suffered reading this paper. It was it's much shorter than the paper we read in the first segment, but it took me much longer to read um, because I was doing anything else other than read it because uh, I just really it it's important, but it it, it caused me a lot of stress uh, because it's describing scenarios where teachers are aware of some of the discriminatory effects of the homework that they're assigning and the grades that they assign for compliance and completion of that homework, aware of to the extent that they are acknowledging it, they're identifying it in some of the interview conversations the researchers are having over time, where they're saying, yes, there are differences between how students are able to engage or not with these homework, depending on the other stresses and burdens that they encounter in their lives. Sure are. And then they turn around and immediately then say that, well, the difference in results of these homeworks are the results of the responsibility of the students, rather than con connecting a pretty nearby dot that what you just said about the differences in systemic access or burden of those students is explaining what you're seeing with the homework that you're assigning and grading. I'd like to disambiguate a little bit. Here's the, here's the like circumstances. We give kids math homework. We give all our kids the same math homework. Some kids go home and they have a quiet place to study. They have uh, opportunities and time in their day to study and do the homework. Uh, and, and they can additionally have parental support on that homework when, when they are struggling. And that set of circumstances is highly correlated with higher SES students. Another set of circumstances is the student goes home with homework. They don't have a quiet place to work. They don't have time to work. They have other obligations that they have to meet in their family. And when they do have time to work, they may not necessarily have a parent who is either available or knowledgeable about the quality of this task to be able to provide support. And those circumstances are highly correlated with lower SES students. So we give them the same homework. And that isn't even the problem. The problem is what happens when they come back to school the next day. The teachers are saying, well, we know there's a difference in their home life. We know there's a difference in what supports are available. We know there's a difference in the, like, the academic experience of the family as a whole. We know there's difference in work schedules. We know there's difference in general health issues. We know there's differences between this, that, or the other. And the answer is 
the poorer students have to work harder. And if they really just worked a little bit harder, this would be fine. If the parents just cared a little bit harder so that they would do their homework with their kids, this would be fine. And that's a problem. That's absurd! Uh, they said that in teachers' perspectives, teachers describe students that happen to have more support at home. They perceive them as putting more effort into their homework. That's a problem because there are students who don't have the supports that are putting far more effort into their homework because they don't have the supports that aren't making as much progress. And so then they're assumed that they're not putting in any effort. And what's... They gave some examples, some concrete examples out of the stories that arose during the course of their research. And a couple of them are gave me pause. And I've been with you on that let's not grade homework train for quite some time as well. And even I was like, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about that in that way. One of them that they pointed out was a teacher telling a story about how they had reprimanded and applied consequences to a student who had been copying on some homework in order to have it complete as was expected. And they, well, that's just the deal. You can't be copying. You don't get the benefit of the homework if you copy. And so I have to, I have to do this. And that same teacher also acknowledges, well, a lot of the, a lot of the richer students, their parents just do their homework for them. And so what can you do? And I'd never put those two things right next to each other. Those are the same thing. Yeah. They're both copying. So why is copying from a peer so I can have it done so I can pass this class bad, but copying from a parent so I can have this done so I can pass a class is good or at least fine or at least tolerable. And it shouldn't be. That's, that's not fair. That is discrimination. And the teachers in this study were by and large not engaging with that. They were not encountering the unfairness of that perception. Some of these are really poignant vignettes. And one of them was students are coming into a room and the kids are complaining about how hard the homework was. And the teacher says, yeah, it is a super hard concept. This is something we're going to be working with for a couple of days. So it's okay if you didn't get it yesterday, because we're going to come back to it tonight. And one kid says, man, I didn't understand it at first, but then my mom sat down with me and we worked on it for a while. And then I was able to understand it. And then another student says, my mom doesn't do that. And uh, flings her arms dramatically and calls out in a pain voice. My try, my mom tried to help, but she doesn't remember. And the other students laugh, and a few not understandingly. So that makes it really concrete. That the amount of support students have at home is uh, different from you know different from each other. But what really kills me is that later there was a teacher who said that. Parents need to provide more support because the answers to the homework are given to them. They need to go over that with their kids because I don't want to use class time to go over homework. So parents should do it. And that just sent me into a rage because, you know, regular listeners will know from the last um, uh last episode, the season finale of season five, that my most important paper was 
about providing feedback to students. If you're going to have them do homework and say, no, no, you get all the feedback from your parents and then we're going to do new things tomorrow because that's what I want to do. That is just completely dereliction of duty. That is just absolutely wrong. You're doing the best part of learning, saying it's the parents' jobs to do it. They're not qualified teachers. It's not their responsibility, your particular content or your learning goals. But you're saying here, I give you the assignments and your family teaches you. And when you come back tomorrow and I give you more assignments. I think it's total garbage. And I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I really, I had... I, I read these things at a coffee shop and I literally got up and paced up and down the coffee shop because um, I, I just could not stand that comment. I do not want to use class time to go over homework, so parents should do it. Goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. I I need a drink. But the, the series of stories made me think of another story you told from a while back where it was during the remote times and you're doing something teachery. And all the students are engaged in a remote fashion. And you called on a student to respond to a question or give some sort of analysis. And the student comes off of mute and says, I'd like to respond to that, but I'm in the middle of driving a tractor and something's on fire. So I need to attend to that right now. And your response was, yes, that is an appropriate judgment. You should attend to those things. And this will be a problem for another time. And I thought of that story because what was absent in so many of the teachers' comments from this paper was that recognition of the lived context of their students. They don't need to be responsible. They're the correct amount of responsible in that moment. If completing the homework without watching them do the homework is how they get credit in your class, well, that worksheet can be completed with varying degrees of effort, and some people with more support can do that with less effort than some people with less support. Uh, and since we can't see that, we can't see that because we can't give them spy cams and watch them at home their entire life. And even if we could, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. That's not something we should do. Yeah. What do they know? Not how did they come to know it? I think is important to say. And that's something that came up in the paper where there was a story where there was a teacher observing. They said the phrase, they won't even do the easy homework. And I think that there's an entire paper's worth of material to unpack from that one statement because it raises the question, what is homework for? Why would, why would anyone do easy homework? Like if it's not going to make me better in my understanding or ability to execute the skills relevant to a course, like easy homework is presumably not something that's eliciting struggle, then it's just a measure of compliance. Like that would be the first homework I wouldn't do. In fact, I have a long life history of not doing easy homework. So like, what is the point of the homework that we're assigning? And they have an entire section. There's an entire theme they pulled from their data about the problems and the inappropriateness of assigning homework that a student can't do on their own. And I think that there is also the other side of that coin of if the homework is not eliciting productive struggle, what value does it offer either? Which then leaves us with this very narrow band 
of what homework can be productive in the first place, which I think then brings us back to the place where you and I have both landed of why in the world are we giving this homework in the first place? Know your students. Well, how was the beer? This beer was indeed a return to form. I felt that the coffee was very, very, very strong. And it oh. it felt more like coffee than beer to me. But I, I am buzzed, so that's interesting. I didn't I didn't have that experience. I, I drank a whole bunch of coffee this morning, so maybe it's I'm just I'm just a dullard in my ability to identify coffee. Um I didn't. I, I actually forgot it was even coffee infused until until this moment. Well, maybe I, I, I taste the lactose. Like the, with all of the milk stouts that we drink, really the number one thing is I'm just drinking lactose in water is primarily what I can perceive. Cold brew, chicory infused, New Orleans style coffee, a touch of maple. I didn't pick up the maple. I might know. I, I, I might be tasting the chicory, but I don't know what chicory is, so I wouldn't be able to identify it. Thank you once again to Dr. Bruno for joining us and having a conversation about his paper. Uh, to all of you, if you have topics that are top of mind going into the new school year or paper suggestions that we can read, we love to be engaged with all the listeners. We'll see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.